Hey everyone, happy Wednesday. It's Arnold with Warm Welcome, wherever you're tuning in from. I'm hoping that you are safe and sound. Today we are sitting down with Alice, and Alice is the founder of Hana Bakoli. And this is kind of a follow up to just the episode that we released on this past Saturday, which we chatted with Carol from Maku.、Uh, in the sense that both of these founders、uh, have founded a Makoli brand, a Makoli company. And、uh, as we kind of introduced last week,、uh, Makoli is a Korean equivalent to a Korean rice wine, rice beer, whatever you want to call it. Depends on who you're asking, I think.、Um, But in any case, I just want to preface this interview by saying that we'll refer to the word sur later on during the interview. And I just want to say sur is、um, in Korean, it just literally translates to alcoholic beverage. So it's a loose term, the word sur that we use to refer to any sort of alcoholic beverage, such as bakoli, but maybe you know, you've heard of soju. Soju would also be under sur. And,、um, Wanted to make sure I preface that. And then the other thing is、uh, with this interview, we go pretty deep into the science of makoli, how she makes her specific type of makoli.、Uh, even makoli, it could be divided into different categories too, depending on how they're making it and producing it, which I thought was really interesting. So we get into kind of the nitty gritty of making makoli, the history of it.、Um, definitely a, a deeper dive this time around、uh, as, I, as I kind of probed Alice about.、Um, Why, she, why, she, why, she's, why she's doing this. And、um, it couldn't have come at a better time. She's soft launched a few weeks ago. She's actually preparing for her official launch this coming Sunday, November 1st, which you can find out all about on her website. And at the end, I'll circle back to give you guys a little bit more detail and information on obviously her company and how you can follow along. But、um, yeah, I'm really excited. Really excited to share this conversation I had with Alice.、Um, Without further ado, this is my conversation with Alice from Hana Makoli. Hope you enjoy. I grew up in the central coast of California in a town called Santa Maria, just above Santa Barbara.、Um, so, neither LA or San Francisco. Um, but there is a community of Korean Americans and Korean immigrants there.、Um, so I'm first generation.、Um, my parents immigrated here maybe in their late 20s、um, and had me, and they got into the restaurant business. Well, my dad got into the restaurant business, and my mom was an acupuncturist and physical therapist, both of them owning their own businesses.、Um, so, you know. I came over to New York to attend NYU's undergraduate student school of business. But my understanding of business coming to NYU was entrepreneurship. Like, I did not understand what finance was, I did not understand what professional services were. The world of consulting and finance were just so distant from me.、Um, so, I had actually struggled a lot at NYU my first two years. Um, just because, you know, obviously everyone in college, they go through a bit of an existential crisis, but I did not know what I wanted to do.、Um, and that's kind of how I ended up in consulting. And also, it's, you know, funnily enough, uh, uh, how a lot of people end up in consulting is because, well, they have a wide range of skill sets, but they just don't know what to do with it. They're problem solvers. 
Um, so that Deloitte Consulting, I started as a sophomore there as an intern. And then it was my first full-time gig out of college. Um, and I was there for four years. I really loved my work at Deloitte. I loved the travel. I mean, sometimes it was hard, but I learned so much from Deloitte. Um, and in particular, um, learned so much about like time management and work-life balance because that I didn't realize was such a priority to me. Um, and I'm really glad I had certain boundaries set up before I started going in to start my own business. Um, if you know what I mean, cause you can just get lost in it, you know? Um, so yeah, that's kind of my background, um, with home NYU and Deloitte. Um, the funny thing about that journey is that I was kind of making sur or brewing makgeolli the entire time. Um, my dad taught me how to brew makgeolli. He's a home brewer. He learned from his mother. And then he passed it kind of down onto me. Um, I was kind of brewing in college. Um, mostly it was like experimental and for fun. I really didn't know what I was doing, but I, you know, later on looking back on it, I, I know that I learned a lot um, just because I didn't have like that scientific background. Um, so it was all observational lessons. Um, and then it really turned into like a full-blown nerding out passion project um, after college <laughs> and when I had like a big enough apartment albeit New York apartments are small but a big enough apartment where I could like just fill with um brews so that's, yeah, awesome. that's my background that's awesome and you know I'm sure we're gonna be talking about Makali a lot obviously because you started a Makali business so for people listening that don't know what it is how would you how would you define it because I'm sure you have an elevator pitch at this point right <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, makgeolli is such a storied beverage that you, there's so many stories related to it. I feel like whenever I talk about it, something new comes out. Um, I'm not tired of it yet, surprisingly. Um, I guess makgeolli, well, first of all, right, For I guess it's for people who don't know, right? Makgeolli literally translates to something like carelessly filtered thing, literally. Um, and the thing about makgeolli and also when we're speaking more broadly, sur, is that it's not careless at all. Um, makgeolli is one of the oldest alcoholic, or sur is, um, has an incredible history um, within the Korean peninsula. Um, it's a method of brewing using um, rice, a combination of rice, nuruk, which is a traditional fermentation, a Korean style of fermentation starter, um, and water. Um, there's many different recipes and methods on how to make it, but um, the unique thing about makgeolli and what makes what distinguishes it from other types of alcohol, albeit may it be beer or sake or wines, is that um, chemically it is a spontaneously fermented brew. And when it comes to grain-based or rice-based um, alcohol brewing, um, it's unique in that the conversion of starches to sugars and the sugars to alcohol and CO2 happen in parallel. It's a diastatic fermentation. So um, not only are you relying on 
wild cultures to kick off fermentation. Um, but you're also, it's a timing thing, right? You're trying to control the growth of the yeast culture that co that coexists with the enzymes that sacrifice the rice and make sure that those two things time well so that you can get full alcohol conversion. And there's so many ways to do that. Um, historically, you know, something that I really love about um, Suru's story is that um, alcohol brewing, well, I guess it's not unique to Korean culture because really like everything good in this world is made by women historically um <laughs> no truly but um you know alcohol brewing in korean culture and korean history um technically methodol method well, what's that word the methods were driven by women and advanced by women and studied by women and documented by women um so that's something that i really love about korean sewers as well um you know in today's culture i mean some of the listeners on this podcast might know that Korea has a huge drinking culture um, and that in the modern sense or contemporary sense centers around sojus and makgeollis that are um, well recognized as green bottle makgeolli or green bottle soju. Um, but there is so much breadth and depth to this alcohol category that people don't know about. And that's the whole driving force behind what we're doing with Hanamakoi. And you, you mentioned a lot about there being a lot of stories and history with Makoli. So could you maybe get a little bit deeper into that in terms of like how it started? Because I think from, from what I've gathered, my preliminary research was that it was, it was like a farmer's drink, right? It was really for the, for, for the everyday, for everyone, right? It was a very accessible drink. So this is where the su as a category, and then also linguistically, the way you talk about certain subcategories within su becomes very intricate, right? Um, so, and then there's like the historical way of speaking about things, and then the modern day way of speaking about things. So, um, the reason why makgeolli is known as a farmer's drink is because historically, when you make a su or a brew, a rice based alcohol brew, um, and coarsely filter that, the final finishing su without any kind of dilution is re um, referred to as a wonju, right? Um, and once you settle, once that um, coarsely filtered brew settles down, um, the wonju separates into a yakju and a takju. So the yakju being the clarified liquid without any sediment in it, and then the takju is at the bottom, um, it's this, it's the yakju plus the sediment, the remaining rice sediment that um, passed through during filtration. Um, historically, you know, like many food and beverage products, cultural food and beverage products, um, it was socially stratified and there was a hierarchy in which you drink. So yakju or the filtered clarified sur would be, um, filtered out or racked off and it was for noble women, men and women to drink or people of higher class. Um, takju was typically watered down um, with, wa I mean, with water to make makgeolli, right? Um, and that was for the lower class. So 
that's the reason or the history behind the association between makgeolli and it being a farmer's drink. Um, another reason why it's considered a farmer's drink is because um, it used to be that if you drank a bowl of makgeolli, it would be like eating a bowl of rice. So farmers would, you know, in the middle of the workday, take a break and drink a bowl of makgeolli and it was sustenance for them, right? Um, a little without the proteins though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's a little bit of like kind of, I guess, the folklore around around it. And, and there's so many more beautiful stories. Um, something that, you know, I just thought of this, it just came to me, but um, my, I hear a lot of people when they try my makgeolli say something along, especially the older generation of Koreans or Korean Americans, they're like, wow, this tastes like what my grandma or my uncle used to make, right? Um, or, you know, this tastes and smells like what, you know, my grandma would feed me like a spoon when I was little, a spoon of when I was little because I had a tummy ache or something like this. Um, for me, my dad was sent to the Yangjujang in the town or like the um, Chumak in the town every once in a while with like a kettle or some kind of, you know, Korean form of a growler to get the local makgeolli um, to bring back home. So in, in, a, in a modern sense, I guess, um, I'm not sure if it's, you know, hierarchical in terms of economic or social class, but um, there's a nostalgic quality to makgeolli. So that adds to the whole persona of this beverage being a farmer's drink as well. And I guess tying into that, one of the most interesting what if questions for me, and I'm sure maybe maybe you thought of this too, is there was a moment in time where you couldn't make rice-based alcohol drinks at, at like, like home, right? It was banned. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that just gets me thinking. It's like, if that didn't happen, I wonder if it would look a lot different today, right? Oh, I mean, it's of my opinion, but also... Um, many others, especially, you know, the homebrewing community and the street community in, in Korea. Um, our generation's understanding of makgeolli and sur has been completely redefined by historical events. And this gets political, but also we can just look at it from a distance um, in a historical way to get a better understanding of what this beverage is, right? Um and this happens across cultures, across food products and beverage products, right? If there is war, if there is famine, if there is shortages or any kind of regulatory um, impacts, right? Um, that affects later down the line, later generations understanding of that food product or that beverage. In Korean sur in particular, um, between like, let's say starting in the late 30s to about the 60s, you know, the sewed industry was affected um, and not just the industry, but homebrewing practice in Korea because that was huge um, part of the culture. Um, first, there was a homebrewing ban, right, due to um, rice shortages. Um, then there was a consolidation of um, breweries into you know, maybe one or two um, breweries per locale or region. Um, 
the Japanese War um, introduced um, specific, specific restrictions on these consolidated breweries where they were not allowed to brew with rice and instead they were forced to use substitute starches relying on wheat and sorghum and tapioca and potatoes and things like this. Um, with all of that, right, you know, our understanding of Makoli's, at least the ones that we see in the gr grocery store here today um, that are imported here from Korea, um, that all those historical events contributed to what you're tasting in that bottle. But, you know, it, contradictory to that, what Su is or what Su could be, like you mentioned, um, is so much more complex just on, you know, if you're talking about flavor or what you're feeling on the palate, um, sur is kind of punches you in the face, right? In terms of ABV. Um, also in terms of flavor, you're getting a lot more bitterness. That's kind of, you know, similar to tannins, um, and wine, you're getting acid that's naturally occurring, um, some brews are effervescent, slightly effervescent because they're not a pasteurized. Um, you're getting such a wider spectrum in the flavor profile um, when it comes to traditional sous or what we call chongtongjus today. Um, and that is that missing link and that bridge that I kind of want to help connect in, on the U.S. side, because in Korea today, we're seeing a revival and a renaissance in chontongjus and craft brewing. Um, craft, not beer, craft beer brewing. That's a separate movement and it's, you know, well underway, but um, craft Korean alcohol brewing. Um, it's really exciting to see. So that was a great one-on-one for me and I'm sure people listening, but now I really want to get into your company and like what you started. And I mean, I'm kind of connecting the dots, but I'm, I'd be curious to see if there was maybe um, like a pivotal point where you're like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to quit my, cause I'm sure, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure it was fairly comfortable or like maybe you, you got the groove of working at Deloitte. It's been, you were there for a few oh, years, yeah. so, you know, you, yeah. had a, you had maybe like a career path that, that was kind of set for the next few years, a few more years. Yeah. So yeah. what made you leave that kind of environment and, 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 and start your own business? Fortunately slash unfortunately, it wasn't as clear cut as just like me quitting Deloitte and then starting Hanamakali. Hanamakali started while I was still at Deloitte. Um, it was kind of a side hustle, but not really a side hustle because I wasn't technically allowed to sell. It was me, you know, brewing, like I would fly Monday through Thursday, right? Get home, get home to Brooklyn Thursday night, you know, be brewing in my apartment or eventually we were like kind of test brewing in a pilot uh, in a kitchen, commercial kitchen. Um, I would go, you know, brew Thursday night. Um, and typically I would be making like two stage, three stage brews. So I would have until like Monday morning to finish that brew and let it go off and let, let prepare it to ferment before I had to set off again. Um, it was kind of at this like peak of peak home brewing practice where I started Hanamakuli. Um, partially because I just needed to make room in my apartment. Um, there was just 
like my fridge was full of scooters and experiments and there was literally no room for anything else um I started sharing it with friends and that kind of just gained its own momentum and it turned into educational lectures and pop-ups and tastings, uh, private or public. And um, it was during this time where um, I realized that, oh, I didn't mean to do market research, but I'm starting to see a trend here. Or in fact, I'm starting to see multiple trends converge. Um, not only were a diverse group of people interested in what I was making, but people were interested in, they were, it wasn't like an exotic, like, oh, this is a Korean wine, right? It, it was like, oh, this is a Korean wine. Cool. Wow. It reminds me a lot of like a sour beer, or some kind of pale ale, right? And then, or, you know, for the wine drinkers out there, they'd be like, wow, I love the acid in this. Like, I just don't get this in sake, but I drink natural wines only now because I need this acid profile. Or, you know, there was a lot of that kind of feedback. Um, and even if it wasn't for the really avid drinkers, people were like, this is really fun. You know, like I get to try something new. Um, and it was through this kind of informal feedback loop that I had kind of found myself in that Hanamakuli was born. Um, it was through this event that I also met my business partner, John Lim. We, he actually was a board member of KoreanAmericanStory.org. And um, I had and I was friends with another board member on the, on the nonprofit who had brought up over a bottle for like a board barbecue. Right. And he was like, what is this? And that's kind of how we met. Um, and, you know, he was kind of mentoring me while I was trying to figure out, okay, well, is this going to become a legitimate business or not? And then eventually turn into like the best business partner. Um, yeah, but that was in late 2017, and Hanamakli started, you know, kind of informally, like 2015. I mean, it's an exciting time. You you launched, what, like a week, two weeks ago? Not even, like a week ago, <laughs> right, yeah, officially? Yeah, well, it, it was a soft launch turned stopped launch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's like a good problem to have it's still a problem though I wish I just I wish I just had more Makali I mean with COVID right I, every business is impacted um, but it's especially tricky for businesses that are just starting up because you don't have any idea and obviously you can just, just like alcohols are doing well for example but a niche product within that you know how do you measure what the demand will be prior to launch? So we were brewing like crazy, but in small amounts because we were just trying to fine tune and hone in on our final brew. Um, and we can get into the design of our brew house later because it is quite unique, but we were, we're I mean, this is all new technology and methodology, right? Also. Um, so we were just fine tuning our brew and then, um, we made, um, what we thought was enough. Um, and we had this partnership with Korean American stories, 10th anniversary gala. We were going to provide our drinks to the donate donors, all the stuff. And then 
suddenly that event was doing really great. And then there was a bunch of demand outside of that event to grab any remaining bottles from the soft launch. And we sold out. It's just insane. Um, I wish it's like such a noob mistake as a, as a starting, as a starting business owner, right? It's like, you're like, dang it. I should have made more and kept this momentum going, but it is a blessing in disguise because we've also learned so much in this short, in this like short stint of the launch. And we're really excited to like make improvements really quickly, whether it be to the brew or, you know, to our method of sale or, you know, all aspects of the business. Um, and we're preparing for a relaunch on October 12th or mid-October. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. And I definitely want to get into the, the methodology and maybe how you make it. But even before that, I want to make sure I, I address a personal question I had, which was when I first came across Hanamakuli, was like the name. I want to learn more about why you chose that name. And then the, the logo, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a woman, right? The name is not so original. It's just my Korean name. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a little embarrassing because I'm not really, um, like I'm not, I'm not a narcissist, I swear. Um, <laughs> um, it was just like the easiest name that I could come up with. This is when Hanamakli was not Hanamakli. It was just like cute, cute stickers on a bottle, you know, that I was sharing with friends. Um, but it stuck. Um, the logo on the other hand, I get, it's, it's really meaningful to me, you know, um, one, it wasn't, it was a very natural process. It was the first mock-up of the logo that we did. Um, I tend to kind of personify things. So when I was drinking my makoli, um, and my sus, you know, I was trying to envision like what kind of person or what kind of woman would this be, right? Um, would she be sexy? Would she be elegant? would she be, you know, so X characteristic. And I ended up, you know, being very confident and sure and um, made me, I was fulfilled by the idea that my Makoli would be a strong woman, right? Like I wanted visually to represent a, mako, uh, a woman that is strong and warm, but also can kind of like scold you you know, like what your mom or your emo is like within the home, like that experience I wanted to, is what I felt like my makoli was because we are higher on the ADV side. We brew between 12 and 16%. We are like medium to heavy bodied, right? Um, in terms of texture. Um, and then um, we're authentic. And, and really this is what, like this is the heart and soul of our Korean culture is the fortitude of Korean women. So that's kind of the original thinking behind that. And then aesthetically and symbolically, I wanted to represent her body is not only like big in the sense that she's strong, but it's shaped like a ongi, which is the traditional fermentation vessels. Um, not only for sur, but for a lot of fermented Korean products. And then um, her head is a hiyut for hana. Um, and of course, there's this, it's like um, an ode or an honoring of the women that 
continued to brew or advanced brewing technology and methodology in Korean culture. Um, and also continued to brew despite the hardships that this specific subculture faced. Right. So that's, that's the whole thing behind the brand. <laughs> awesome. No, awesome. I really, I was just so curious because I saw it. I mean, it's very visually impactful, right? It's like, wow. You know, it's, it's, it's very different from what maybe, I mean, uh, I mean, green bottle soldiers is a great example. Look at those green bottle soldiers in Korea, right? They're plastered with the celebrities that, that are usually trendy in Korea at the time. Um, so just to see this kind of a branding was very fresh and different. The other thing I really like is, is how red it is. Cause it reminds me of like traditional Korean brands that have that kind of like Korean stamp feel, if you know what I mean, right? The red stamps. Yeah. We were also inspired by that as well. Yeah. So that, that was a really, really nice touch and like an homage to maybe like more the traditional, uh, nature of things. Um, but so that was great. And I definitely want to touch on, um, you know, what you're doing differently and also just starting a brewery. I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's like another thing, you know, um, I don't think anyone's, I think you're probably the first, first brewery that that's here in the U S specifically for, um, the purpose of making, you know, makori or crane soul in general, right? We're not the first or we're the first currently. Um, but Sur has not a long, but somewhat significant history in the U S um, there's been a couple breweries, um, smaller local breweries. It was New York locally um, up in Westboro, New York, that was making todokju um, for a while. Um, there was um, Pesanyan, um, not Pesanyan. There was a makgeolli brewery in Chicago um, that, yeah, um, that, sorry, the name is escaping me. I apologize. Um, but there was a Makkali um, brewery in Chicago that closed down around, um, I think, 2012 or 2013. Um, and they were trying to, they were um, a subsidiary of, the, of a larger um, Makkali brewery in Korea before. Um, and we're the only ones that have lasted now um, and the only ones that exist now. But there has been plenty of attempts for Korean to make Korean rice wines of any sort. Um, that being said, right, um, we are the first to try to make chontongju style. So not relying on other starches other than rice, um, not relying on um, koji or commercial yeast, but purely focusing on the nuruk um, as the fermentation starter using, you know, longer, cooler fermentation time and also more advanced methods, right? Um you know, typically we're brewing samyang juice and above, meaning there are three stages brews or more. Because this one is an efficiency question for us. It, it helps us get the most alcohol out of a brew as possible. But also from a flavor perspective, you're developing so much more complex flavors by doing a longer, slower fermentation process. We'd like to think that um, even though it seems like we're taking a risk. Um, we remind people that we were not the first ones to try this out. And in fact, the U.S. market has been preparing um, to welcome sewers for actually quite a while. 
if we look at the you know, growth of sake along with Japanese cuisine and what is now Japanese American cuisine in America today. That was quite a long process. Um, and we're just starting to see that the beginnings of that with Korean gastronomy, you know, in the biggest metropolitan cities in the U.S., you're seeing Korean barbecue and elevated Korean cuisine even um, pop up everywhere in New York. I mean, the number of restaurants that's focused on some kind of at least Korean-inspired food has doubled, if not tripled, over the last two, three years, right? And now we're starting to see a proliferation of Korean cuisine, whether it be casual or, you know, finer throughout the U.S. And, you know, it would be a shame if there was not um, a more traditional representation of Korean food to go along with it and along with that growth. So that's kind of you know, what we're about, um, especially because it is difficult to bring in chantong juice from Korea. It's a highly regulated industry, first of all. Um, and it's nothing like being able to brew locally. And I, I mean, kudos to you because I, I feel that there's just so, there could be so much risk doing this and introducing such a new product. And I think education is going to be the biggest hurdle for you in terms of just educating consumers on what this is. And I think it's a little difficult given obviously the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? It's not like you can host events or you can, you can do collaborations with restaurants where maybe you can host an event there and educate people on, on your product. So, um, you know, there's that. And then also I didn't know about these other um, breweries that, that had been around, but to your point, early 2010, I mean, I think it's all about timing. They might have been first to market, but early 2010 wasn't really like, I mean, let's see if, if I equated to New York, the only really interesting stuff that was going on is probably um, Huni, Huni stuff like Han, uh, Hanjan and Tanji and maybe even Esther Makbar. Um, but that was it, right? That was like the first wave, I think, in terms of like what I like to call some sort of, if you said Japanese and then Japanese American, I would, I would relate as a Korean American almost. Right. So kind of like an Americanization on Korean cuisine, I think really just began to start then. And then, I mean, now, as you had mentioned, that definitely it's, it's been a movement in the last two, three years. Um, I know you partnered up with God, but God's definitely, you know, Simon's definitely, a big part of this, um, obviously, uh, you know, Elliot JP and so many other people who have opened Korean restaurants. And one of the, the pain points that I've heard and that I know of working, you know, at, a, at one of these new Korean restaurants is it's very unfortunate that we can't pair it with a Korean alcohol, right? Like wine, don't get me wrong. It's cool. It's cool that we can make wine work. But it's like, if I, if I could share with a guest a great wine from Burgundy as opposed to something like some esoteric alcohol, like a Korean alcohol, I'd rather choose the latter because I think there's just so much more of a story to tell there. And, you know, you're, you're coming on at a really good time. Yeah. Um, two points here, right? One, you know, I mentioned before that I was, while Hanamakli was like in its really early stages, I was witnessing a convergence of trends, right? Um, you know, the growth of Korean 
food and the proliferation of it throughout the U.S., um, people's interest in um, natural wines, sakes, specialty wines, and sour beers within craft beer, um, that trend. And then also, you know, there's this also a slight plateau in the craft brewing industry, which, you know, I, people can take this either way, but um, I see it as an indicator that people want to try new things, right? Um, love an IPA, but people don't need another IPA you know? <laughs> um, and so it's like all of these trends kind of coming together is what makes it possible to create a new segment. Um, whenever you're introducing a novel product um, to a market, right? You can't force it, right? I mean, I guess you can like create amazing social media marketing and go viral and make sales that way, but this is not that kind of game we're in it for the long run and we're trying to build an integratable category within alcohols and within wines so that's kind of what we're doing there and then um you know in regards to your pairing in regards to pairing it's we have had macaulays in the u.s um but they have been the more commercial imports or exports out of Korea that tend to be 6% ABV. They're really sweet. Um, they kind of drink like a soda pop yogurt kind of situation. And although as delicious that is, as it is, it also depends, you know, it depends on the situation. If you drink a, a sweetened, a sweetened beverage or a sweetened wine with, you know, let's say like, fine dining Korean or even you know something between like Korean barbecue and you know Huni's Hanjan or Tanji just anything that really it's all about in any situation where it's about the food if you're introducing aspartame or sweeteners in the form of lactose or anything like that you're going to get a film on your tongue it's literally phlegm right it coats your taste buds and it kind of ruins the whole thing. You need dryness. You need acid. You need bitterness. And, you know, you still need sweetness, but you just need a touch of this is what makes a good meal even better. And that's, you know, the really thing, the thing I'm excited about because I love eating and drinking together. Um, that's the thing I'm really excited about, um, about for people to try is that, this wine and this style of sur pairs so well, not just with Korean food, but with many different cuisines. And um, it also cocktails really well because you're, you're, you have that body and you have that punch. It's not going to get watered down or hidden. So there's a lot of potential to this kind of product as well. One of the, the last topics I want to talk about is your brewery because... I think one of the one of the things I was reading was that you had designed it so there'd be like a tap room space, a community space as well. So tell me a little about about the space, although we probably can't enjoy it for a little I bit. Know. But. Um, it's a twenty five hundred square foot foot warehouse in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, my favorite neighborhood. I lived there for several years before I got priced out. I mean, it's airy. We're kind of on the commercial side. So we're on DuPont and McGinnis on the northern corner of Greenpoint. The building was um, vacant for about six to seven years. Previously, it was like a mill working place. It was also a a produce storage um, facility. Um, When we walked in, there was a 25 foot wall, like 
as soon as you walk into the warehouse and the entire warehouse was split into two floors. And um, we found that space in early 2019, or no, late 2018, closed on it early 2019, and then broke ground in mid to late 2019. It is a modest space when you're when you're talking about breweries um, or wineries, typically you're looking, you know, at breweries and wineries, even in New York, you're looking at 4,000, 5,000 square feet plus. So it's a small space, although, you know, we chose it because even though it's small, there's plenty of room to grow. 600 of that, 600 of the 2,500 square feet is dedicated to a small tap room. It's meant to be kind of a place where people can come learn about the Makoli or our tours um, and um, speak with us face to face, come and have a brewery tour, hold events there. Um, and it's meant to be kind of this like chill getaway. Because um, when you think of microbreweries and tap rooms, you know, it, it's a very specific vibe that you're going for, right? But here we wanted to have it really low key, laid back. You can, you know, sit down and learn about and sip on our tours for as long as you want. Um, the remainder of that space is a production space. Um, the really cool thing about our production method is that we are using stainless steel tanks and specifically stainless steel tanks that have been fabricated to mimic the hand-making process of hand-making process of chonpong juice as much as possible. So it's really, really gentle, albeit, right? Like some people might say, well, you know, the fact that you're brewing in America and the fact that you're using this kind of um, equipment makes it, um, you know, non-traditional technically. And I admit that it is, you know, within our little circle or our bubble, quite revolutionary, but it is what it takes to be able to make chontong juice at scale and at quality, right? Because when you look at some of the best Korean breweries and artisanal breweries um, in Korea today, they're still making everything by hand. And that is what I mean by labor of love, right? Um, this type of sur brewing, I mean, winemaking and brewing is backbreaking work, but this type in particular is extremely, extremely hard. And um, it truly is a labor of love. Um, and, and that's also why a lot of people mention um, the concept of sommat when it comes to chontong juice is because it is literally handmade, right? For us though, you know, to be able to meet our goal of being able to establish a long-term, in the long-term, a separate category for sur and for Korean rice wines here in the U.S., um, we wanted to be able to scale it. So we worked with custom equipment fabricators um, to kind of blend both wine and beer and new techniques um, into our equipment and make it a completely closed system so that we can achieve the consistency that we want. Yeah, I mean, I hope I can host you over at the brewery one day and show you myself. It's, it's, um, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it's so exciting for for to, to hear that you have a physical space, right? Because I think that just opens up so many doors yeah. for, and, and, and I have, and I have mentioned education, but I mean, there you go. Like that's the perfect place to, to show people firsthand, like how it's made, where it's right. made, right? Um, it was really important to me to have control over the process of brewing too. I kind of mentioned to you that my dad taught me how to home brew. Um, 
Yeah. You know, when my dad taught me how to homebrew, you know how it's like typical, especially in Korean cultures, if you learn from like an elder on how to make anything consumable, they're like, oh, iman kumno, right? Like it's all yeah. <laughs> very like observational, I feel, but there is such a huge merit to that type of teaching and that type of learning because I was brewing from muscle memory to begin with. It was completely based on instinct and sometimes I would completely F up, right? But then it gave me an opportunity to test out certain, like I guess, hypotheses, you can call them, on how to fix it, right? Um, and then it wasn't until later, like I literally did not know what nuruk was. Like I didn't know what yeast did until, you know, much later in my home brewing practice. And that, and when, but when I started learning um, and started digging deeper into the chemistry behind brewing, um, and in particular in through brewing, it's like that combined with my ability to observe and look for what is right. And um, at least for my brews, what I want to see in my brews um, while it's fermenting, I still wanted to be able to have that kind of control and access when we were making brews for Hanamakoli at a commercial level, at least, because that really is winemaking, brewing, fermenting in general, is being able to listen and look and hear for how your brew is doing, you know, how is it feeling? It really does have its own, like, emotional, <laughs> emotional <laughs> intelligence, I guess. Um, but that really contributes to how good of a brew you can make. I'm looking forward to the day where, where I can actually visit and see, you know, every, all the blood, sweat, and tears that you put into this. Literally this, this, blood, this sweat, and tears. Company. <laughs> Seriously, though. Um, <laughs> and the labor of love, you know. On a lighter note, like, Makkali, even though it cre- it's like such a, I don't know, I guess agonizing process to make, it really takes a toll, you know. Um, the feeling when you drink it is so warm and so light. You know how every alcohol creates like a different feeling, like tequila kind of makes you crazy. White wine makes you kind of like ready to party. Red wine makes you kind of sleepy like that kind of stuff. Um, Makkali's or Swiss in general create a lot of heat, right? And it's not like belligerent, angry heat. It's like, I want to give you a big hug kind of heat, you know? It's a really communal um, beverage. And part of it is because the alcohol creates that kind of feeling in your body. It really opens you up. So um, despite it being a pain in the ass to make, um, it really is. <laughs> it really is so worth it. And it's so lovely. And I can't wait to share it with you. Yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad you touched on that because you know people ask me if I love drinking, and I say I do. But my my version of drinking is not, you know, tequila shots and chasers, and then you know, it's it's it's, it's opening up a model of of alcohol and being able to have a communal experience, like a warm experience. And that's that's my version of drinking. And I think I think makoli is 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 for that purpose, right? It's not to go hard or ham or anything like that. It's actually it's actually to open up to others because I think um, a large part of it is because the culture too, like Koreans are, Koreans are warm people, but on the onset, they're very cold, right? They're very, they keep to themselves. But the thing is, if you, if you, if you 
if you meet Korean people in a in a drinking setting, it's like another. It's like another. It's like you're a totally different person, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what makes this category of alcohols exciting. Is that by default you're expected to eat with it, and by default you're expected to drink it with other people? You know. Like, it's not just the sur, it's like, it's the whole culture around it, and people really gravitate towards it, and like, I'm just like, bring it on, you're all welcome. <laughs> Very much looking forward to that day. So, I mean, um, first of all, I learned a lot about Makoe, so thank you, and the history of it, and I think that that was very important for me to share with, with listeners, because, you know, I, I personally was wondering why no one was doing it, but there's a reason to it, right? But I'm... I'm cheering for you. I'm I'm so happy for you, and I'm so excited to see this this space grow, you know, larger and larger every day with people like you in it. And um, you know, I just really appreciate you taking the time to to share your story with me too. All right, if you've made it all the way through, really appreciate you tuning in. And uh, as I had alluded to in the beginning of the podcast, I just want to make sure I take the time to share with you where you can find Alice and her and her company Hana Makoli. So on Instagram, it's Hana Makoli. Spelled H-A-N-A-M-A-K-G-E-O-L-L-I. And their website is basically their their handle, .com. Um, I'll try to put that in the episode details as well so that it's easier for you to click through. But I would definitely suggest you following Alice and Hannah Makoli because I think what they're doing is it's very revolutionary. And I think that um, to make a distillery just for the sole purpose of making makoli i mean that's that's a lot of not a lot of risk but i think it just shows determination on alice's part and 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 how much she believes in the product um so kudos to her for doing this especially trying to launch a business during the middle of a pandemic as well um so i hope that um, in between this episode and carol's episode that your interest is a little bit piqued about makoli and this Saturday, uh, I'll be bringing someone on, actually, that is an expert in Korean suru to be talking more broadly about that category as well. So um, hope you've been enjoying this kind of mini series about Korean alcohol and beverages. I didn't really plan on it being this way, but it just so happened that I was looking at the episodes that I've recorded and that I had on the shelf. And uh, I decided I would kind of lump them all together because it made sense in my head. So uh, that's that, you know. Um, Again, thank you for tuning in. I'll see you next time. And uh, this was Arnold with One Welcome. Bye.